Disclosure, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, any and all information presented in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making any decision. Hey everyone, Ben Keedy here with the Wealth Crypto Podcast and have another awesome episode for you today. This time my guest is Huff House. Huff is a real person, but this is actually a pseudo-anonymous name for him. We get into this in the podcast, so make sure to give it a listen. But Huff is currently working on a decentralized protocol for pair trading. So if you're trying to trade currency pairs, say Bitcoin and Ethereum, you might want to check out the pair protocol. Huff has a background in financial services, uh, worked in one of the big banks over in London for a number of years. Uh, this was a great conversation, so hope you enjoy. Thanks. And we are live. Huff, welcome to the Wealth Crypto Podcast. Thanks for joining me, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So for everyone who has listened to this before, a quick note, you'll notice that um, we're rocking the display pictures today, and that is for a reason. And we'll dig into this in a second. But Huff, maybe maybe just give us a little bit of your background, what you've done to get you to your point in crypto blockchain. Um, and then we can just kind of go from there. Yeah, perfect. So um to address the profile picture thing, um, the only reason for that is because I'm building in the kind of decentralized exchange space. Um, so a lot of people prefer to be pseudo-anonymous uh, just because it's a changing regulatory landscape. My own background is in investment banking. So I did it for 10 plus years. I worked on the trading floor for a big bank here in London. Um, did that until 2019. And then I quit my job to go full-time DeFi after that. So I've been building in the space for about three and a half years um, as a founder. And I, I love it. I love the transition from TradFi to what I'm doing now. What, uh, what was that transition from TradFi like? Did you, did you know that you were going to end up in DeFi? Was that something you were interested in doing? Or did you just kind of fall into it? Um, it was a little bit of serendipity. So... What happened to me in my kind of crypto journey is about halfway through my banking career. So I started banking in 2010, about 2015, 2016, I was really interested in the fintech movement. And I tried to go to a fintech event in London, but to enter, you had to buy and pay with Bitcoin. Oh, and I didn't okay. have any Bitcoin at the time, right? So I opened a Coinbase account, I bought some Bitcoin, and that got me down the rabbit hole. Okay. And I missed... I missed the entire fintech wave, you know, when you had like Lending Club and all these kind of fintech unicorns. Sure. And I stayed in the bank. And so as like the years passed, 2017, 2018, 2019, I became acutely aware that banking in its current form is not necessarily the future. And I was looking around and blockchain technology had gone through a speculative phase, mm -hmm. but there was some interesting stuff being built in DeFi rails. So I started playing with a lot of the DeFi protocols, farming on different protocols, farming across different chains, and it ended up being lucrative enough for me to to quit my job and, and pursue it full time. So a little bit of uh, curiosity mixed with uh, serendipity. Yeah, yeah, that's usually how success works out, right? <laughs> you, uh, you just put the time in and occasionally get lucky and 
you know, if the luck shows up and you execute, then usually you do pretty good. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, that's great. So let me think. I mean, there's a million things that I've kind of got bounced around in my head. So like maybe just a little bit more about your your banking background. Like I have a buddy who uh, is a former investment banker. He transitioned to a crypto hedge fund. Um, his experience obviously helped in that regard. Is there anything, I guess, maybe you take from your banking experience that directly applies or was useful in this transition for you? I, I missed a bit of the, the question, but I imagine it was to do with my TradFi background and then how the transition went. Yeah, yeah. Um, I noticed that my connection was unstable there for a sec. But yeah, essentially just, you know, what was useful in your TradFi background as far as what you're doing now? Understood. So um, the TradFi experience I had was on the trading floor, right? So I started on, on, on trading and then moved into sales where I'd speak with clients like asset managers, pension schemes, family sure. offices, etc. And what that experience taught me on a deep level was A, how macro really works. Like when the Federal Reserve meet and interest rates get set, I got to see firsthand how the bond markets reacted and how the equity markets reacted and how clients reacted to that data. So I got a deep understanding of how financial markets worked because ultimately we had money on the line and it was my day-to-day -day job. Mm -hmm. The second thing that TradFi taught me is that ultimately technology is what will give you a competitive edge. And so when we were speaking with with all these different like clients of the bank it was the ones who had really embraced technology that were getting like much more efficient execution they were getting much tighter spreads they were um, just kind of dominating in terms of data and analytics and, and knowing when to trade and what to trade right sure and so my two experiences that i took from tradfi which helped me in DeFi today is i have a deep understanding of where the tectonic plates are shifting with regards to global macro and then mm -hmm. second, the kind of exponential power of technology. And so for me, it's a natural fit to like combine finance and technology and do it in this kind of new wave, which is DeFi. Um, and so that's that's kind of where I've settled on it, which is um, it's a really interesting and nascent space. It's full of cowboys and it's full of sure. chances. <laughs> yep. But there are some like real kind of flashes of brilliance and and i really like look to those and try to try to build with those people for sure yeah it's you said something interesting there about your the clients and i guess the prospects that you were working with and how technology had influenced their businesses did you i mean did you see at the time at the bank that you guys may or may not have been keeping up in regards to what clients and prospects were up to on the data front like do, was there any sort of thought around that or um did you just happen to notice that clients and prospects who were doing well were just more sophisticated on the tech side? So it depends. It depends what kind of client base. So definitely when it comes to hedge funds, the ones who had like managed to achieve high latency, uh, sorry, low latency, quick execution, um, and really be able to move fast in markets were definitely the ones at the bank. You could just see from the prime brokerage unit, they were the most successful. Sure. When it came, when it came to like the, big asset management clients of the bank. So imagine like the top five asset yep. managers in the world. The ones that were really focused on risk management, on analytics, et cetera, were the ones that were also performing very well. Okay. Um, a good example there is someone like BlackRock, right? So BlackRock yeah. had this internal product called Aladdin, 
Yeah. And Aladdin is essentially their like internal risk management tool, which they've then passported out to uh, a whole bunch of other other sure. banks. Yeah. But what Aladdin lets them do is collect data on institutional investment flows to really see how trends are forming and and how uh, volume corresponds to that. And that gives BlackRock a huge edge because they have an overview of what not only themselves, but their clients and what their peers are doing, which, again, data drives everything. And, and these guys were really quick to adopt that more than 10 years ago. Yeah. Do you... I mean, how how do you think that applies to DeFi now? Do you think that there is enough sort of institutional quality data for people to really adopt DeFi? Or are we still kind of in that building phase towards that? So the great thing about DeFi and blockchain technology is everything is super transparent. So you get to see like what wallets are doing, what you can do, some decent level of wallet analysis. Um, there are some upcoming things that I've seen where they use things like uh, big data pattern recognition and AI to like identify trends where money is moving between different farms, mm -hmm. uh, when volume is starting to accumulate in different uh, tokens and projects. Like, I think it was still in a nascent stage, but there are some interesting people really trying to tackle that problem. And from my perspective as somebody who who like trades these markets a lot there's also a lot of people trying to create like the bloomberg of crypto so whether it's masari yeah. whether it's uh, people like the thai uh, whether it's nansen etc all of them seem to have this similar tagline of creating like this bloomberg terminal where all the data is at your fingertips um for that and i think DeFi is maturing i wouldn't say it's there yet but it's definitely maturing do you kind of feel like it's I mean, do you, people have been waiting for the institutional sort of adoption of crypto for a while. Do you feel like it's around the corner or are people still just very cautious in their approach? Um, it depends which institutions and in what kind of way are they adopting crypto. So the low hanging fruit in crypto is custody. So you've seen companies mm -hmm. like Deutsche Bank, Fidelity, Bank of New York, Mellon, et cetera, yeah. launch a digital assets custody business because the, those people are banks and their business is to hold assets and take a fee to hold those assets. Yeah. So the low-hanging fruit's already been picked off. The bigger institutional adoption comes in the form of like actually moving some of their traditional finance business on-chain. Mm -hmm. So borrowing and lending, for example, are they going to bring that on-chain? Things like making collateralized or uncollateralized loans, are they going to bring that on-chain? the trading of equities and bonds and tokenizing other real world assets. So they're going to bring that on chain. And as far as the spectrum goes, I think we're still a way off to that, that kind of utopian vision of institutional adoption of blockchain sure. technology. But there's companies like the biggest companies in the world, right? JP Morgan tried basically a fork of Aave uh, for its, for its clients. Um, and they, they rolled that out in a KYC manner. BlackRock, if you look at their annual report, talk a lot about the tokenization of uh, fund management structures, including stocks and bonds. So there are people looking at it. But right now we're in this kind of middle ground where everybody's picked off the low hanging fruit. And there's quite a few steps to go before we get to uh, DeFi mainstream adoption. And even if we do, it's going to be on their terms. It's going to be KYC. It's going to be um, kind of gated entry you'd have to hold some kind of kyc nft to participate sure that kind of thing 
What what do you kind of think about that, given that, you know, you operate in a pseudo anonymous way, um, you know, for strategic purposes? What I mean, what is what do you think of the push pull between between DeFi and CeFi? Like, can they coexist? Um, or is it going to be more kind of like a spectrum of things? Like, do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, my my thought is that all the problems within like 2022 were caused by CeFi players, whether it was FTX, whether it was Free Arrows Capital, whether it was Celsius, Voyager, whoever it might be. Um, And those counterparties kind of masqueraded as crypto firms and DeFi firms, right? Yeah. We've had a flush out of them. And so now you're left with the two polar opposites. You're left with like pure DeFi projects and protocols like MakerDAO, for example, Maple Finance, for example. And then you're left with like purely centralized institutions. Think JP Morgan, BlackRock, et cetera. Um, How do I see that kind of going out? I think the centralized players want to own the technology, right? So they want to have their own permissioned blockchains. Yeah. They want to be able to KYC investors that use the blockchain. And they ideally want control over the stablecoin that's inherent to that uh, DeFi ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So I can't imagine them being too happy with the dominance of Tether in that kind of uh, environment. So I think what's happening now, especially out of the US, and this is a bit of a cynical take, is there's a bit of a land grab going on, which is an admission that this technology is popular, that stablecoins are part of the future, that uh, blockchain technology enables some interesting DeFi use cases, especially borrowing and lending, especially trading, especially tokenization of real world assets um, and, and things like that. And I think they have a longer time horizon, the people that are looking at this. And they're thinking, how can we own the whole value stack, not just come into today's values, today's protocol layer? Like mm. rather than slot in, how can we create the whole stack for ourselves? It's kind of a horrifying thought, I guess, if you think about it, because I guess you would say that the DeFi idea is that you don't want centralized actors controlling everything. Right. But mm-hmm. it kind of sounds like what you're telling me is that these large, sophisticated CFI players are definitely looking at crypto, blockchain, et cetera, et cetera, to, to own the entire space. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, they want to own the stack, right? Like that's, that's yeah. my kind of cynical take on it. So I go to a lot of these more like TradFi focused blockchain uh, conferences mm-hmm. and there's a lot of like my old colleagues floating around in, in these, you know, the people that have pivoted to crypto, but not sure. like not really. Yeah. And my take in it of it is they are really skeptical about where crypto has got to today and rightly so. So one of the comments I'll, I'll just like give you a quote, which kind of captures the essence of this. Somebody who's in like a position of power, they said to me, Ethereum is great. And what the Ethereum network allows and what smart contracts allows is great. But Ethereum has also enabled people to run hacks, to run Ponzi schemes, and to run outright scams. And unfortunately, that is like the layman's impression of Ethereum and what it, what it yeah. exists for. Um, but the technology is interesting. It's just being misused. And I don't think you can have fully permissionless and anonymous uh, technology like that. 
in today's regulatory environment. And so that's what gives me this kind of skeptical lens that there's going to be a movement towards more traditional finance companies involved in blockchain. But the way they get involved is by uh, having permissioned KYC blockchains, uh, by having their own stablecoin of choice, yeah. and by really like, again, like I said, owning the value, the whole value stack, which might end up being their own like version of Ethereum or some variant thereof. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I, I from my casual seat as an observer, that that seems to be where it's going. Like they they like the idea of you know efficiency, cost saving, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they also want to know everything that's going on on that blockchain. Yes. Um, and I, I mean, I guess from where I, I don't know if there's any way to avoid it outside of people just continuing to use decentralized protocols, but, but it kind of gets in my head, at least in the U S westernized worlds, like people are so used to the centralized platforms we have today for banking and finances that they don't necessarily see a need to adopt fully decentralized approaches. But if you look elsewhere in the globe, and maybe you have some experience here, it, it seems like people are more, much more willing to accept a fully decentralized sort of interface to conduct business. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're right. I think if you look out to Latin America or to parts of Africa or even to India, um, there's a real kind of demand driven thing to actually like participate in in decentralized permissionless manner um especially when your own government is not trustworthy with regards to like the degree of inflation or the amount of corruption that takes place etc so there are definitely pockets of uh, interesting things happening like for example what reserve protocol are doing with their r token and the rpay app in in latin america right creating like a fully decentralized stablecoin backed by real world assets uh, in a in a pseudo anonymous way. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So, what, what was that? That was Reserve Protocol. Yeah, Reserve. Okay, I have not, this is the first time I've heard of that. I'll have to take a deeper look into that. Um, I mean, just just to get your take on it, what do you think about sort of the CBDC kind of landscape? Is are they? I mean, it, it looks like they're coming regardless of what we want them, like if we want them or not. But what do you kind of think of, you know, governments and their own blockchains and digitizing <laughs> the dollar, the euro, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I think. Like there was this argument maybe five plus years ago, which said, oh, Bitcoin can never be money because Bitcoin is used for like drug trafficking and it's used for like all these nefarious ways, right? Sure. And somebody responded um, to Janet Yellen and said, oh, you should find out what the US dollar is used for. Yeah. Um, yeah. By criminals, right? And, yeah. and it's like way worse. It's like child sex trafficking, human trafficking, like the dollar is, uh, enables all these things. It's just you can't police it. Yeah. So I do think the idea of digital money is interesting because it leaves a paper trail and it makes it so much more efficient for like governments to collect tax taxation becomes super fair and just automated and whatever you can also track every transaction so like if i was to pay um you ben for something then like that those dollars have a clear source right the source of funds aren't subject to money laundering etc so i think the case for digital money is super strong I don't think Bitcoin becomes reserve digital money. And so in lieu of that, clearly governments want CBDCs mm -hmm. to do that. 
I think it's better than fiat, um, just because it's more equitable in in some ways, um, and I think it creates a fairer playground. I think it decriminalizes a lot of like illegitimate fiat uses. Um, but we've worked so hard to create a system of decentralized money that I'd feel very disheartened if things like Ethereum, things like Bitcoin didn't gain a counter movement against CBDCs. But right now, the reality is like less than 1% of people have a MetaMask what, what they yeah. and, and participate yeah. on chain. So how strong is that counter movement against CBDCs going to be? Because I take my wife as a great example of that. She will always use a CBDC sure. over something on chain just purely because she's never used the on chain thing, but her government tells her to do the former. Yeah. 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 There's a, uh, I, I kind of equate it to like from my software background, just like the, the UX experience. Like if, if the user interface isn't easy for the average person, it just is not going to get used. And then, you know, people like you, me and everyone in DeFi crypto do it because it's interesting. It's cool. We're willing to invest the time to figure out how to set up a wallet, what type of wallet, how do we send stuff? But for people just trying to pay their rent, like, I think, yeah, I, I just think that like user interface has to be smooth and easy for them to actually begin that transition. Absolutely. Like, it seems agree. like we're getting closer, but I don't know what the catalyst is going to be to actually get people to say, hey, you know what? I'd rather just take my paychecks in Bitcoin every two weeks and you know side by side i can see you know so many bitcoins equals such and such fiat but we're you know we're not we're not there yet yeah i don't think we're i don't think we're there yet and i think the catalyst is things have to get worse before they get better so i don't want to sound like too much of a conspiracy theorist but like the countries that experience these ridiculous levels of inflation like turkey or argentina etc they're the first ones to adopt Bitcoin as decentralized money or to look at decentralized stable coins because there's a real need. Now, I don't want to live in a country that has 7% inflation per week, like in Venezuela um, yeah. or elements of Turkey, because it's horrible to live through. But once you have those kind of extreme scenarios, that's what forces people to look for alternatives. Once you like go from being able to buy one loaf of bread to being able to buy just one slice of bread and all that's passed is 24 hours. Yeah. It, um, it, it like starts to impact you mentally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from your, uh, from your TradFi DeFi seat, what do you generally think of the state of inflation central banking around the world right now? Like, do you think they've kind of started to get it under control or is this just like oh. a, a pause in the storm? <laughs> It depends who you talk to. Like, I, I live in the UK, right? And there's a, a very real cost of living crisis. But if I hang out with my wealthy ex-banker friends, I'm not going to be subject to that, right? Like, yeah. they are now working from home. They don't need to commute as much. They get to save a lot more by being at home. Um, for all intents and purposes, it was a good crisis for them, right? The sure. value of the house is largely unchanged. Yeah. They don't need to be mortgaged. They've got a, they paid their house off many years ago. But if I go and hang out with my friends from where I grew up, they can't afford to buy a house. Interest yep. rates are super high. Their weekly shop goes up by like X percent of their income. They can yep. no longer afford to run two cars in the household. They definitely can't go on holiday anymore. They yep. can't eat out. Like all these metrics of, of what pertains to be a good quality of life 
aren't there. And then I say to those friends, oh, like, are you thinking about having kids? And they're like, absolutely no way. I can't afford a kid right now. I can barely afford my avocado toast. Yeah. Just, um, it is definitely a real pressure. And I think unless you spend real time with people who are like in the middle of the distribution curve, so not like the super wealthy or the super poor, if you like spend time with just most people who are in this like normal distribution of income, you feel it like very acutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I kind of feel like the world has got incredibly just bifurcated. Like the, you've kind of got the ivory tower, you know, set that doesn't feel any of this and is generally fine. But, you know, normal people day to day, I mean, that, yeah, things are just expensive. Like, um, and I'm, I'm cu- I, here in the States, I'm still curious because this story has started, like it's more or less faded away from your sort of everyday headlines, the inflation story. But I mean, it, we've yet to determine if they've actually really beat it. And, you know, it takes a while for interest rates to actually cycle through an economy where, you know, like the Fed put uh, air quotes pause on rate hikes, but guided pretty hawkishly that we can still do whatever we want to. So I just don't think we've really seen the effect of this rate backup yet here in the States. Um, I'm inclined to agree with you. Like uh, I'm a trained economist. It's what I, it's what I did in my uh, major degree and uh, what I ended up doing for the first few years of my career. But interest rate hikes operate with a lagged effect on the economy and those effects are starting to be felt like in the household market, in the commercial lending market, um, et cetera, is being felt at home by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Now, any external event can come and can really exacerbate that, right? Like if there's an escalation in geopolitical conflict, if there is uh, a cold, particularly cold winter in Europe or whatever it might be, any catalyst can really just exacerbate a lot of those um, those issues. We've been fortunate that we've got these like deflationary things happening at the same time, yeah. um, which is largely driven by tech. So things like Amazon are great for bringing down prices because they streamline their operational overheads and then people just spend much less and, and do end up saving money. Um, I'm interested to see how AI plays into, into those kind of cost savings as well. Um, but can the Fed achieve a soft landing? So far, it looks like they're pulling it off. So far, um, I just, I just think they they're pulling it off based on like the big numbers that get reported in terms of unemployment, unemployment and GDP, etc. But if you were to do like a census door to door, do people feel better off than two years ago? after interest rate hikes or three years ago, I'd say most people say no. And so your metric for like a developed economy where people don't feel happier is, has gone down. Yeah. It's, it's interesting for sure. I thought we would see more cracks based on just the magnitude of these, these rate hikes over the last year and a half or so, but it, it has held up for now. (laughs) Like you said earlier, like it's, you know, we'll wait and see. We don't really know what the future holds, obviously. So it could come out of nowhere, but, um, but we'll find out. So, um, let's see. I mean, let's, uh, let's maybe transition a little bit here, Huff. So, uh, 
you're, you started Pair Protocol. Um, that's what you're working on currently. What was the inspiration for that? Sure. So Pair Protocol is a, a trading fl- platform on Arbitrum. So we are on an Ethereum layer two. And what Pair Protocol enables is for investors or traders to narrative trade. So when I say narrative trading, crypto trades off narratives all the time, whether it's yep. Bitcoin outperforming, outperforming Ethereum, whether it's Arbitrum outperforming uh, Optimism, or whether it's Pepe Coin outperforming yeah. Doge, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter. Like crypto trades off narratives, and the volumes uh, are concurrent to that. One of the problems for traders in crypto is sometimes you have, like, often you have to take a directional view. You have to be long or you have to be short. And there is a third option where you can be long something and short something else against it. Mm-hmm. Now, you're not going to make as much money when you're right, because uh, let's say you wanted to be long uh, Bitcoin and Bitcoin goes up, you're going to do well. But if Bitcoin goes down, you lose money. But if you think Bitcoin is going to outperform something like Solana, right, mm-hmm. then you can go long Bitcoin and short Solana. Yeah. And that kind of thing is called pair trading. It's very common in traditional finance. Yeah. In traditional finance companies or hedge funds and other institutional investors will look at two highly correlated assets, let's say Apple stock and Meta stock. And mm-hmm. they'll say Apple is a better better stock than Meta. So I'm going to go long Apple. I'm going to go short Meta. I don't care now if the NASDAQ or the S&P goes up or down. I just care that I'm right about my narrative. Yeah. And so what Pair Protocol enables is that narrative trading. So you can select from a wide universe of cryptos to be long select a wide universe of cryptos to be short, and then enter a pairs trade, which is simultaneously long and short. The rationale for building it is to create a tool for investors to have a much more sophisticated strategy, but for them to do it on-chain with self-custody in a capital-efficient manner as well. So we enable leverage, we enable um, composability of your position, and we enable, most importantly, self-custody. You own your product and your assets at all times. Okay, interesting. Um, I was listening to one of your podcasts. Uh, I forget if it was yours or if you were a guest, but uh, I'm paraphrasing here. But essentially, you guys were running into people who were saying, yes, we want this. And you guys were building it and needed it too. What is it like to build, I guess, are you guys a fully decentralized protocol, I guess, in that regard? Like, How has just like the, the startup phase of getting this business off the ground been? Absolutely. Um, So we have to protect ourselves, right? Because right now the SEC has all sorts of uh, crypto firms in its crosshairs, and one of which is uh, decentralized exchanges. Now, they haven't necessarily come after any specific one, but the task for us is to prove that we're sufficiently decentralized. Sure. A little bit of an educational thing, uh, maybe for your audience, Ben, but if you're trying to achieve that, There's a typical strategy. You have a development company. Let's call it Pair Labs. You have the DAO, which is governed by the token holders of Pair Token, Mm -hmm. who oversee all the protocol decisions. That's Pair DAO, which is fully decentralized and maybe a Cayman Foundation. And then you've got Pair Protocol, the community-hosted front end. Mm -hmm. So us, we run Pair Labs, right? And Pair Labs is just a development company. We create software. It so happens that the DAO has contracted Pair Labs to build Pair Protocol for the benefit of Pair DAO. Yeah. Um, and so we've, we've kind of entered this like tri-party setup for the business. 
um, which is very similar to other DeFi protocols. We've taken the same template, how Uniswap sets up theirs or how Aave sets up theirs, etc. And we've essentially gone to VCs. We've raised money. We've had a legal team behind us. The yeah. team have all worked together over the past 18 months. We've set up the DAO. Uh, the protocol goes live in the next few months. Okay. And we're looking to build it in an ever decentralized manner. So the goal for us is to like pair labs could wind down, but pair protocol still exists. That's the kind of end goal. Yeah. 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 And that kind of gets you into that interesting, uh, you know, are you a security debate, doesn't it? Um, given that. I guess you could maybe argue you guys are a relatively small team right now with a small set of investors. So it's, you know, not as decentralized as needed, but the goal, like you mentioned, is to get fully decentralized over time. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. As, um, I mean, just from an operational standpoint in terms of finding, you know, your engineers, how did you go about doing that? Oh God. So my, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) finding good dev talent is, uh, like it's a funny one um essentially i met my co-founder through developer dao so okay. developer dao was a and is a leading web3 um dao it initially was nft gated so you had to own one of like these 10,000 nfts to get in um they only minted them like to people who could who were really following it from from genesis and in there, he was talking about like a couple of DeFi ideas, but needed somebody with TradFi experience to really like make it real. Sure. And so the him and a few developers all came from developer DAO. What's transpired since is we get lots of people coming into the Discord and the Telegram saying, hey, I'm an experienced developer with six years of blockchain experience, right? Yeah. Half of those are scams. Like half of them just want you to open a malicious PDF and to to like... Oh, try and run some script to, to yeah. take your tokens. So you've got to be yeah. super aware of what's going on in this space. Some of them are recommended, though, to us. And so through like developing networks, through knowing a whole bunch of other founders, through some in-real-life efforts and attending conferences, um, we have built a strong team now of six-plus devs. Okay. And, and so finding that talent has been like a real kind of process of going through the mud yeah. a little bit. Um, we've had to, we've hired people who have turned out to just be terrible. We've hired people uh, who um, just didn't show up and didn't do anything. Um, we hired people who were like just trying to take an arbitrage and then send it off to some agency to complete it and, and sure, take a fee. Yeah. So like you've really got to have your wits about you, um, and that's why I like <laughs> I, I kind of let off a relief laugh when yeah. you ask the question about finding developer talent because it's really interesting right there's like ten thousand solidity devs in the world right now Mm -hmm. of which i'd say maybe a handful like 1500 to 2000 of them are good and uh, commercial and speak english and when i say mean speak english i don't mean like the actual language but just like actually being able to communicate with you yeah 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 Yeah. of that i think i'm lucky i found a co-founder who is one of those Okay. Um, but finding talent is is yeah it's a unique challenge i think in crypto interesting yeah i could i mean i'm i was just looking on your website and just kind of thinking about a distributed you know global engineering team and where these people come from and like 
like I, I've always kind of thought like, oh, I've got this idea. How do I actually build this? And then I always stumble into the wall. I can't code for shit. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to find somebody to do this. And how do you actually go about doing that has always been a fascinating question. So, yeah. Um, and then, I mean, like, just as far as the startup goes, like, I'm just very curious about just operating a decentralized startup, like, uh, in terms of just communication, how you guys run things and move the project forward. How, how does that work? Are you, are you kind of leading this or is it um, more of a group effort? Like, how do you guys sort of execute on building this platform? So web web three is a funny one because sorry, one second web three is a funny one because Everybody works from home, right? So we don't yeah, have yeah, like yeah. a central, we don't have a central HQ. We don't have uh, an office space. We are completely uh, decentralized in in terms of where we're all based. So I'm UK based. Um, my head of BD and COO, um, those two characters are both in and around London. My co-founders in Jakarta. We've got tech talent in Pakistan, India, Nigeria, and Chile. Oh wow. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And then we've got a couple of people in the US that do like community management and and moderation and things as well. So fully decentralized team. And how do you orchestrate these people who all work from home and who like some of them I've not, I've never met them. Right. Um, I try and run it because I worked in investment banking for so long. I try and run it as a co-founder, like any traditional business. So first thing on a Monday morning at 8am, we have a team get together. We have like a stand up um, every day where everyone has to kind of report back on what they're doing. Discord yep. is amazing for like project and team management. Everything okay. is on our Discord server. Yep. All our calls take place there. We've got different channels for different things, uh, like different channels for legal, different channels for marketing, different channels yep. for partnerships, etc. Um, and then we do. Um, we do take all our calls like online with, with yeah. VCs or with f other founders or with devs, et cetera. Um, we are looking to do an offsite at our own cost uh, and meet up in person in the summer, um, which will be really exciting, but ultimately trying to hit the best bits about web two, which is like accountability and a great work ethic and sure. use modern technology to streamline that. As yeah. Well. Yeah. I was, I was just going to ask, like, have you, have you guys like actually met in person, but um yeah, I, I would imagine getting people flown and through customs and everything from all over the world is going to be quite the challenge once you guys do your offsite. Right. It uh, it definitely is. <laughs> um, well, let's see. Uh, how are we doing on time here? We're about 11.45. What my time? What? Um, I mean, Huff, do you have anything specific you wanted to mention or do you have questions for me? I always kind of like to give it back to you for a second here no I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on the crypto markets because we've got a a weird confluence of things happening right so you've got a hostile regulator in the us the sec yeah and what it seemed like is that we were just going to get bludgeoned to death uh, until the end of the year until blackrock came by and filed <laughs> this etf and yeah. now suddenly everyone's pulling out their forecast for 100k so between zero and 100K, there's obviously 50 shades of gray uh, between between those two black and white scenarios. I mean, what I'll split you... the difference and we'll just make it easy and go for 50K here. But um... I'd, I'd, I'd love that. But would love to know your thoughts and your community thoughts on 
Um, crypto are people like leaning bullish are people allocated are people sitting on the sidelines what's your what's your personal take and what's your community doing well i mean there's a lot to think about there like i i try not to get conspiratorial with crypto but um the fact i mean the, when i saw blackrock stepping in with coinbase for an etf i was like that is super interesting how and why that's happening now i you know it's beyond me to know but it gets my head spinning a little bit um i mean as far as gary goes it looks like he's mostly just doing a turf war he's just trying he seems to be more you know off the podcast i've listened to off you know just his actions it would appear he looks more like a political player at this point i don't think he's really i don't think he really cares much about the sec um based on you know, I mean, I think I think he's probably gunning for a treasury position if he can get it at some point. Um, I've read that in a number of places, but he just seems to be operating more from a turf war kind of standpoint. Like going back to what we were talking about earlier, that crypto is popular in a number of different ways and that it is going to be an integral part of global financial systems going forward. You know, there there is going to be a regulator. And, you know, at least in the U.S., it's, you know, commodity futures or the SEC. Um, who's that going to be, you know? Right. So it kind of, I think if you look at it from that perspective, his actions kind of make more sense, but you know, a lot of this, I mean, at least as a lot of, as far as the, the, the lawsuits go, like he won't even probably be around by the time they're decided, you know? So, um, that that's just an interesting backdrop in and of itself. And I think at least as a U.S. citizen, it's, un, I, I personally feel like it's unfortunate because, I think you're pushing, you know, a brand new industry, like disregard, like, you know, the just Bitcoin is money type thing, but just like pushing blockchain offshore generally, I think is not the best approach. Mm. Um, shoot. I don't know what else, what else did you ask about there? Um, I mean, as far as my network goes, most of the people I talk to are, I would say generally positive. Like most people are just kind of head down, just doing their thing and, you know, getting some good news here about like BlackRock is, I think it's probably a double-edged sword. Like I was reading your, uh, your Twitter huff about, about BlackRock coming in and like potentially just having, you know, total oversight over crypto, like spot Bitcoin, spot ETH flows. And I was like, I don't know if that's good or bad. It may be the devil, you know, kind of scenario. Um, I guess generally I'm kind of like in a wait and see kind of mode. Um, mm. I mean, f for context, my my thing is that I generally think central banks and governments are profligate in their spending and that there is going to be a day of reckoning. What our new money system looks like, I think, is sort of the battle we're fighting now. So yeah. that's kind of where my larger term thematic view comes in, because I, I generally don't think governments are going to stop spending. Like, I just don't think that's going to happen. There's no political will to do that, right? Like, right now, why would any... It's, it was hugely unpopular when the Tory government went for austerity here. And yeah. you saw these like counter-movements against it. Um, even though it's the right thing to do, doesn't mean they'll necessarily do it. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the inherent problem with... I mean, as a former like as a former retail financial advisor, one of the biggest challenges with getting people to agree to the idea of an advisory relationship is just that 
it's not an emotional decision today. You know, like the problem with wealth management is that it's all a rationalized decision for the future, which just goes directly opposite with how our brains work. And, you know, you've got to get people out of like, you know, concert tickets feel good today, vacation feel good good today. You need to be able to get them to feel an emotional connection to their future, which is incredibly difficult for normal people, let alone a nation state. So, um, I don't know. I, I kind of think we're just going to be like Wiley E. Coyote and we're just going to be sprinting towards the cliff and then one day we'll go off it <laughs> and and then we'll just have to pick up the pieces and figure it out from there. But I generally don't think any of the spending is getting under control at any point in the near future. Yeah, and that, that ties back to the, the debt ceiling uh, drama, which we seem to have every year. Um, yeah. And the US is not alone in having this ridiculous level of debt relative to how much gdp it creates do uh does the uk have a similar sort of um debt play every couple of years yeah we don't have we don't have anything like in our legislation like you do um that caps that but we definitely have like i think our debt gdp ratio is like above two but i I yeah don't, don't quote me on that yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, that's depending on what statistics you're using, that's about where we are too. Um and yeah, everyone seems to think that the US can't default, but you know, arguably we we're pretty close a couple of months ago and then we kicked the can down the road a little bit further, but um yeah, it, I don't know. It's uh I pers- my personal view is that if people were just taught financial services early and often like as part of you know, in the U.S., your kindergarten through uh, senior year curriculum, I think people would just be much better off if they actually really understood what money is and how it works, because right. that education is generally just woefully lacking in the United yes. States. Yeah. So that's that's my two cents. So there you go. Fair enough. Yeah. But um, generally, I mean, I'm generally bullish on the space. I think Bitcoin, for the simple analogy, is digital gold. And, you know, as long as we're in a central bank spending environment, that will hold its value. And then I look at, you know, the layer ones like Ethereum as like enterprise grade software. Like if people are there and building on it and using it, that momentum is something I think you would want to be a part of. Um, Mm. And then, you know, as far as the meme coin stuff, I generally stay away from that. I mean, I have a buddy who made a ton of money on Pepe coin, but um you know, you got to be super online to see that trade and know when to get in and when to get out. And that's definitely not me. So I agree. I agree. Yeah. You've got to be very active to capture those. Yeah. 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 Um, well, let's see. We're kind of bumping up that hour mark here, Huff. Do you have any sort of finishing thoughts you want to leave people with where people can find you all that jazz? Yeah. So I think one thing I'd, I'd like to say is this market is really choppy and difficult to trade but it doesn't mean you have to be out of it altogether and there are often thematic trades to put on like right now in the lead up to the ctf approval it makes sense to be long bitcoin but if you don't want the market exposure then go something like short matic against it or short eth against it 
And so everything we're building up here protocol is to kind of enable people to have a third choice. So not necessarily being long or not necessarily being short, but to do both of them in a narrative driven way. That is, uh, is something which you can do in any market scenario. If the market's going up, down or trending sideways, there's always an opportunity. And so with that, I'd encourage people to follow me on Twitter. Um, so Twitter is where I'm most active. It's at H-U-F-H-A-U-S-9. So Huff House 9 and the protocol that I run, which is called Pair Protocol, um, should be easy enough to find if you just type P-E-A-R and then protocol. Um, you should be able to find us fairly quickly. But really enjoyed our conversation, Ben, especially everything about the world, about inflation, about macro, about the transition from TradFi, about building a Web3 team um, and about this critical juncture we're at. And I find myself agreeing with you on many different things. So I hope we get to chat again at some point in the future. Yeah. Yeah. No, Huff, I'd love to have you back. It sounds like Pair Protocol is going to be going live here in a couple of months. So maybe maybe once you get out of the gate there, we can have you on and you can give us uh, an update on how things are going. Amazing. Thank you so much. Cool. Thanks, Huff. Cheers. Bye. Yep.